Chapter 7 It is necessary to follow the custom of the reserve which is contrary to the law. Rupture and Continuity, 1885-1900 to He did not tell me that he had a document, but he told me that it was he who had worked on the land. Ajadaruni, Thomas Jacob, 1895 It has been the custom here that whoever worked a piece of land became the owner of it and was recognized as such by the tribe. Louis Norton, 1895 The Indian Advancement Act has created nothing but divisions, enmity, and separation among us. It has degraded us rather than promoted. Sat de Gayondu, 1895 Although the DIA interventions of the 1880s, most notably the Wallbank Survey, did not immediately revolutionize the way in which Kahnawa Gehronu related to their lands, they did have significant long-term impacts. From about 1885 to 1900, there was a distinct move away from Gahnawage law and toward Indian Act law, even if neither set were evenly applied. In some instances, the DIA took account of Gahnawage law, or custom, as officials sometimes termed it, but sometimes it did not. Chapter 5 This chapter covers the period during which the Indian Advancement Act and the Band Council system were imposed on Gahnawage. As previous chapters have shown, Indian Act law was imposed on indigenous communities in an uneven and haphazard way, resulting in uncertainty and hardship. Not only were these laws aimed at eradicating indigenous sovereignty and culture, they were also imposed in ways that made it impossible for people to predict how the DIA would respond to their actions and decisions, and this book has shown some of the harms that arose as a result. Nevertheless, This ambiguity and uncertainty also allowed space for some people to continue to follow their own laws, even as such norms lost ground to state-sanctioned practices and ideologies. This chapter shows some of the strategies the DIA used to try to take political control in the wake of the Wallbank survey and the ways in which Kahnawage Hronu ignored or resisted them. This chapter covers roughly the 15 years from the time of the Wallbank Survey and the construction of the CPR Bridge to the turn of the 20th century and consists of two parts. The first is a history of the DIA's imposition of the Band Council system on Gahnawage, a move that was designed to strengthen the department and weaken opposition in the community. The DIA and its officers were willing to bend and break laws, disenfranchise voters, slander leaders, anything to get control. Although this chapter shows that the DIA was indeed able to gain some of the control it desired using these tactics, it also shows that even as Gahnawage Hironu suffered under colonial rule, they continued to refuse it. The second part of the chapter provides an analysis of a key event that reveals the changing and contested nature of land ownership and resource management in Gahnawage in the 1890s, just as the band council system was being established. The Lot 205 case arose because of railroad land expropriations, and it produced a remarkable documentary snapshot of Gahnawage legal thought and land practices of the time. The case also reveals a great deal about how the Canadian state attempted to surveil and control Gahnawage land and people, and the ways in which land and resource management continued to be sites of great contestation even after the Indian Act and the Band Council system of government had been imposed. Sometimes the DIA was able to assert itself with no apparent opposition, 
At other times, it seemed impotent in the face of concerted political action by Gahnawage Hronu. The chapter title quotes Indian agent Alexander Brosseau, who admitted even in the year 1900 that it was sometimes necessary to follow the custom of the reserve, even if it were contrary to law. Although the chapter does not conclude at a convenient end point, it looks forward to 20th century trends, inviting readers to consider the incomplete and ongoing nature of settler colonialism and the importance of Indigenous responses in defense of their nationhoods. DIA Imposition of the Band Council System and Gahnawage Responses When the Wallbank survey failed to deliver the expected outcomes, the enfranchisement of all Gahnawage Hronu and the elimination of the reserve, the DIA began to press for the Indian Advancement Act to be applied to Gahnawage, which would establish the band council system. After decades of departmental action or inaction that had the effect of discrediting the chiefs and stripping them of their authority, the stage was set. Through much of the 1880s, the DIA stopped its long-standing practice of confirming new chiefs who were chosen by the various clans. In 1887, only three elderly chiefs remained, who were widely seen as unable to effectively lead on their own. Gahnawage Hronu needed new leaders, so they tried to find ways to work with the DIA that did not involve accepting the intrusive provisions of the Advancement Act. In November 1887, 54 Gahnawage Hronu petitioned to have Section 72 of the 1880 Indian Act imposed. Under its terms, the ineffective Council of Chiefs would be replaced by chiefs chosen in a general election. The petitioners referred specifically to the 1880 Indian Act, not the 1884 Indian Advancement Act, because the former provided for a stronger band council and less potential for DIA interference. They saw this step as a temporary measure that would provide a functioning government until they could resolve the problem posed by the DIA refusal to confirm chiefs. These petitioners represented the anti-DIA side of Gahnawage politics, which opposed the Advancement Act. In January 1888, Agent Brosseau called a general meeting in Gahnawage to discuss the application of the Indian Advancement Act, which was not what the petitioners had requested. Grossly misrepresenting Gahnawage public opinion, he reported unanimous support for the DIA to apply the Indian Advancement Act to Gahnawage. That Brosseau lied about the unqualified approval for the act would be obvious to anyone with some knowledge of Gahnawage politics and history, and it is also revealed by a letter that Brosseau wrote a few months later. Describing a subsequent General Assembly, he recorded that Dawehya Garda, Louis Jackson, and other opponents of the act protested the meeting as illegal and demanded an immediate election to replace deceased chiefs. Brosseau also knew that at least one of the three remaining chiefs opposed the Advancement Act, but he nevertheless recommended that, in the interests of the tribe, it be applied as soon as possible. The DIA planned to impose the band council system and cared little what most Gahnawage Hronu believed, but it used evidence of support from small numbers of community members to demonstrate that there was enthusiasm for the plan. When it came to imposing its own legal framework, the standard approach of the department was to take a letter from one person or group as representative, but it rejected outright the demands for the continuation of Indigenous legal frameworks, regardless of the number of petitioners. 
In the months following the January 1888 general meeting, large numbers of Gahnawagehronu signed petitions demanding the right to elect new chiefs under the old system. Immediately after the meeting, 160 Gahnawagehronu petitioned the DIA, demanding permission to elect leaders without delay. According to historian Gerald Reed's calculations, 32 57% of those who signed the November 1887 petition also signed the January 1888 petition in a last-ditched attempt to restore the Council of Chiefs under the old system. Each of the seven Gahnawage clans also sent petitions asking to elect chiefs outside the parameters of the Indian Advancement Act. The DIA asked Agent Brosseau for his opinion, and he attempted to discredit the petitioners by calling them troublemakers, ignorant, young, or absent from the reserve. To paint the 160 January petitioners with such a broad brush shows just how negatively the DIA and its agents responded to those who disagreed with his plans. Brosseau also felt that it would be preferable to have band councillors than to re-elect chiefs, who, in my opinion, might place the sound portion of the population at the mercy of the agitators and supporters of intemperance, who are trying their best to create trouble and disorder within the village. By portraying large numbers of Gahnawagehronu in such disparaging terms, Brosseau gave DIA officials the justification to dismiss their opponents and to impose the Advancement Act. Brosseau hoped that new elections under the Advancement Act would be held immediately, but DIA officials worried about various legal matters and thus dragged their heels. It even seems likely that they forgot the subject until the following year, when Brosseau reported that he was receiving two or three delegations each week, seeking immediate and precise information in regard to this matter. It is impossible, he wrote, to go on with the affairs of the tribe any longer without something being done. In January 1889, nearly 210 Gahnawagehronu, representing all seven clans and making up 43% of the adult population, signed petitions asking for the election of chiefs while waiting for the Indian Advancement Act applied to us. The wording of these petitions suggests either a strategic attempt at appeasement or resigned acceptance that the act would be installed whether they wanted it or not that they simply wish to have a working government in the meantime. Like earlier petitions, these were denied. In fact, only a very small number of DIA allies in Gahnawage approved of the Advancement Act, five of whom petitioned for its immediate application. Identifying themselves as farmers, they were Dayawanzerde, Thomas Leclerc, Ohahagede, George Wood, Anadahis, Moisey Mayu, Dea Dahawita, Jacques Montour, and Gadzit Dio, Jacques Delabou. In their February 1889 petition, they wrote, Counting on your promise to give us a good law, a law that will be to the advantage of the tillers of land on the Kaknawaga Reserve, we take the liberty to express the wish to have councillors having the same powers as those expressed in the Indian Advancement Act. We believe this to be the means of settling all difficulties for the good of all. Given the way in which the department operated, it probably solicited this petition to give the appearance of community buy-in. Less than a week after receiving it, Van Kugnet told its authors that the matter was now engaging the attention of the government. 
On the same day, March 5, 1889, the Privy Council issued an order in council that applied the Indian Advancement Act to Gahnawage. The DIA then abolished the Council of Chiefs, imposed the Ban Council system, designated the territory, the Kaknawaga Indian Reserve, and divided it into six electoral districts. The configuration of the districts reveals either that DIA officials hoped to subvert the will of the electorate. According to the Advancement Act, each district was to have a number of male Indians of full age equal or nearly as may be found convenient to such proportion of the male Indians of full age resident on the reserve as one section of the reserve will bear to all the sections. But in Gahnawage, almost the entire male population lived in just one district, Section 6, the village, whereas each of the other five contained only a handful of men. Thus, even though the village district housed hundreds of electors and the other five had an average of just 15 to 20, every district would choose a representative to sit on the band council. In addition to having already disenfranchised Gahnawage women through the Advancement Act, DIA officials knew that the layout of the electoral districts also devalued the votes of most of the men, since most lived in the village. To justify their approach, they pointed out that each district contained an approximately equal number of Wallbank's newly surveyed 30-acre lots, and they expressed the hope that the land redistribution would still go through. Once the demographic shuffle was complete and everyone was ensconced on the new lots, the six districts would have approximately equal numbers of electors. However, Virtually none of the 30-acre lots had houses, so the idea that Gahnawage Hirono would abandon their homes in the village was patently unrealistic. Additionally, it was abundantly clear to all involved that the land redistribution would not take place due to the DIA refusal to finance it. Thus, either DIA officials were living in a fantasy world or they had chosen the profoundly anti-democratic layout of the districts because they knew it would produce band councils that were sympathetic to them. Tellingly, some of the largest landowners and strongest DIA supporters lived outside of the village district. The DIA certainly benefited from the situation in the years to come, and its subsequent attempts to control election results further point in this direction. Early Band Council Elections The DIA ensured that the first election under the Indian Advancement Act was held almost immediately after the application of the Act. Under the Act, women could not vote. The adult men who lived in Section 6, the village district which contained most of the population, elected Dohyagarda, Louis Jackson, a respected man who owned no land outside the village. He was a leading opponent of the Indian Act system and captain of the Canadian Voyageur contingent that went to Egypt in 1884-85. Over 200 men voted in Section 6, whereas no more than 12 did so in each of the other five. Agent Brosseau, however, claimed that Dawahyagarda was ineligible because he was not a resident of Section 6 and refused to allow him to attend council meetings. Dawehya Garda produced evidence to the contrary and was eventually vindicated by a Department of Justice investigation, but in the meantime, his enforced absence from council ensured the election of a chief councillor, Ganaharodu Thomas Jocks, preferred by the DIA. The DIA believed that he would advance its agenda. 
A number of Kahnawagehranu petitioned the DIA to investigate Proso's meddling in the March 26th general election and the election of Chief Councillor Ganaharodu on April 1st. Three of the newly elected councillors petitioned the department to annul the results of the April 1st election due to irregularities. The DIA, happy with the election results, sided with his agent and allowed them to stand. Thus, as the first band council election demonstrated, the DIA realized that its own agenda was deeply unpopular and knew that under a lawful band council election, Gahnawagehronu electors would choose leaders who opposed the DIA's agenda. As it was, the department ensured that most of the unfriendly votes went to just one candidate, Dohehagarda, and then blocked him from running for, or even voting for, the position of chief councillor. As a result, the first band council was relatively friendly to the DIA and vastly overrepresented the sparsely populated electoral districts outside the village. Having ensured a relatively compliant band council, the DIA soon undermined whatever legitimacy the council had in Gahnawage by failing to respond to its resolutions. Since the council could not enact its own laws without departmental approval, and since the DIA simply did not respond to many of its resolutions, even councillors who had supported the band council system became frustrated. Nevertheless, the chief councillor and his allies maintained a differential disposition toward the DIA, whereas the three opposition councillors boycotted meetings in protest of departmental unresponsiveness. As a result, the council lacked quorum and could not transact business. The three oppositional councillors disrupted its activities to such an extent that the superintendent-general of the DIA asked the Privy Council to have them deposed and declared ineligible for re-election. As justification, he cited Section 75 of the Indian Act, which stated that the Privy Council could depose a councillor for dishonesty, intemperance, immorality, or incompetency. A Department of Justice investigation concluded that the government did not have the power to unseat the three men. Although the correspondence does not indicate how the Department of Justice arrived at this conclusion, it mentions that it intended to insert a clause into the next amendment of the Indian Act that would give the government the necessary power so that we shall have that to hold over their heads in the future. Under the Advancement Act, elections were held every year, and the 1890 race returned Dewahyagarda to office by a wide margin. This time as chief councillor, along with a council dominated by opponents of the DIA. In its first sitting, the council asked to have the Indian Act amended so that band councils could enact their own bylaws without the approval of the department. 52 Gahnawagehronu petitioned against this expansion of band council powers, arguing that it was unjust for landowners to be ruled by those who owned no land, as was then the case. In apparent coordination with the band council, however, Liberal MP Cyril Doyon introduced a bill that would allow the Gahnawage band council to pass rules and regulations without DIA approval. This bill was debated in the House of Commons in March 1890, with the opposition Liberals supporting it and the governing Conservatives firmly opposed. Doyon argued that Gahnawagehronu were more advanced than other First Nations and should thus be given more responsibility in governing themselves. Liberal Party leader Wilfrid Laurier favoured the Gahnawage Council's request and went further, stating that all banned councils under the Indian Advancement Act should be given these expanded powers. 
DIA Superintendent General and Minister of the Interior Edgar Dudney rejected these suggestions out of hand, asserting that Gahnawage was the one community that did not deserve expanded ban council powers and citing the behavior of the Wahiagarda's obstructive party. Prime Minister John A. Macdonald added that band councils could not be allowed to act independently as long as all Indians, including the wild and dissolute, were allowed to vote for them. The proposed amendment to the Advancement Act was defeated. Plainly, Macdonald's government believed that Indigenous people were not human enough to govern themselves and that they should not be given the chance to do so. Nevertheless, these events reveal that Gahnawage Hironu, who opposed the Indian Advancement Act, were able to take control of the new band council and even to have their propositions debated in the House of Commons. Their apparent political agency did not translate into the successful political and legal changes they sought, but they continued to use all means at their disposal to agitate for them. They soon realized, however, that even control of the council did not enable them to govern themselves. Many Gahnawage Hironu soon understood that the band council system was itself designed to ensure ineffective governance and DIA control, regardless of who was elected. At the end of 1890, the DIA received two petitions from Gahnawage Hironu asking for a return to traditional government. One was from seven women of the Bear Clan who blamed the band council form of government for ill feelings between us Indians. The other was from 121 men who demanded an end to the republic form of government of electing persons and a return to the system in which clans chose hereditary chiefs. The department disregarded both petitions. A contentious band council election in 1891 confirmed the split between those who were willing to work with the DIA and those who were not, with the result that the councillors refused to work together. Once again, the council was unable to reach quorum, and there was apparently nothing the DIA could do about it. In the lead-up to the 1892 spring election, Agent Brosseau reported that a number of people were moving from the village to outlying areas in order to be able to vote in those districts. He believed that those who opposed the DIA agenda were in this way attempting to take control of the council. Since so few Gahnawage Hironu lived outside the village, even a small change could greatly affect outcomes there. Although the DIA had hoped for a village-to-farm migration when it created the electoral districts, it now found these moves alarming, since they threatened to weaken its influence even further. To put an end to them, Brosseau suggested various changes to the Indian Act that would allow him to disqualify his political opponents men who want to live at the expense of the government, from voting. Although his DIA superiors always agreed with this characterization of those who opposed their agenda, they had to remind him that even if his proposed changes were desirable, the Indian Act could not be revised in time for the upcoming election. Undaunted, Rousseau attempted to manipulate the outcome of the 1892 election by declaring that a number of electors in the rural districts were ineligible to vote because they had moved there only recently or because they did not own property there. When results were tied in three districts, Brosseau cast the deciding vote in each. Thus, the 1892 council was dominated by men who were favorable to the DIA, including the chief councillor, Dr. Thomas Patton. 
Because of uncertainty around Indian Act election provisions and questions about the actions of the agent, the DIA deliberated for two months before ratifying the results. Further resistance to the Ban Council system After a number of similarly contested elections, Brosseau recommended in 1896 that the six-district system be eliminated. The system was based on a vision of a future population distribution that never came to be, and in fact the populations of some outlying districts were actually decreasing by 1896. The department initially agreed to the change, but by now the system had been in place long enough for its allies to shift Gahnawage politics, and over 100 Gahnawage Hironu signed a petition asking for the system to be retained. The department agreed. Brosseau said that he attempted to hold community meetings in 1897 aimed at reforming the electoral districts, but these generated only acrimony since naturally all the councillors who represented rural districts preferred the status quo. The DIA also benefited from the districts as they were and thus maintained the six-district system until 1906, even though it knew it to be outside of its own law. A single-district system was finally introduced in that year. Despite colonial meddling and injustice, or perhaps because of it, Gahnawage opposition to the Indian Advancement Act did not dissipate as the DIA had hoped. As soon as the act was imposed in 1889, many Gahnawage Hirono expressed their dissatisfaction and their desire to return to the traditional council of chiefs. This resistance was often expressed in the form of petitions. One such petition in 1894 was signed by 245 people who demanded a return to traditional governance. This was only one in a long line of petitions asking for much the same thing. In response, T.M. Daly, the Minister of the Interior and DIA Superintendent General, and his deputy, Hader Reed, visited Gahnawage to speak to community members in person. In February 1895, Daly and Reed met with about 400 Gahnawage Hironu to discuss the widespread desire to reinstate traditional governance. Although present at the meeting were representatives from Akwazasne, Ganesadage, and other indigenous nations in the area. One newspaper reported that the day was regarded as a gala occasion, the houses were decked with flags, and the assemblage singularly bright and animated. The meeting can be interpreted as a continuation of the Seven Nations tradition of large council meetings in Gahnawage that sometimes included representatives of the colonial government. Chiefs gave speeches in their respective languages. Several argued that the current law was unacceptable, that the old system of governance should be revived, and that the Indian agents should be removed from their communities. One white reporter noted, however, that others were found who had only small grievances with the band council system. This kind of both sidesing, which is still common in journalism, served the colonial status quo then just as it does today. Minister Daly, in what must have been an extraordinarily disappointing speech for many of his listeners, promised to seriously consider their request only if there were unanimous support for a return to the old system. Like everyone else, Daly knew that unanimity would be impossible to achieve. He ended his speech by encouraging Gahnawage Hironu to give more attention to farming, an insult to an indigenous people famous for its agricultural tradition and a way of declaring that the department intended to take no responsibility for problems caused by its own interference.
The dismissive response from Daly further infuriated the many who opposed the band council's system and were now told there was no way out. Satdegayandu, who had been named a chief under Gahnawage law in the 1850s at the age of 20 and who remained in this position until 1889, published a letter in the Montreal Daily Witness in 1895. He wished to refute Daly's version of the Gahnawage meeting and to inform the public of the majority's desire to return to the old system. He took particular issue with Daly's assertion that the Advancement Act would lead to the enlightenment of his people and that reviving the old system would be a step backward. Satdegayandu argued that it would be better to draw back even as far back as 150 years to save our reserve from ruin. For the new system, the Indian Advancement Act has created nothing but divisions, enmity, and separation among us. It has degraded us rather than promoted. Daly and Reed's visit took place in the same month as the Lot 205 inquiry. The subject of the second part of this chapter. The bitter and ironic responses of Gahnawage Hironu, including band councillors two years later at the conclusion of the Lot 205 case, can be better understood in light of this deep grief and frustration. In 1897, 88 Gahnawage women petitioned for a return to traditional governance, stating that the band council system had increased sorrows, eliminated advantages, and caused disputes. With little hope of success, Gahnawage Hironu continued petitioning to have the Advancement Act revoked. A clause in its 1886 version allowed the governor and council to declare that the Advancement Act no longer applied to a band if the desired impact were not being achieved. Although this provision may have given some Gahnawage Hironu hope for a revocation, there is no indication that the DIA ever considered it for Gahnawage. The community continued to petition against the band council system throughout the first decade of the 20th century, and the DIA continued to ignore or reject its requests. Opposition never disappeared, but Gahnawage Hironu understood that the DIA had never intended to listen to them if they disagreed with his agenda. Although more can and should be written about the Indian Advancement Act and the Band Council system in Gahnawage, the short history given here should suffice to show that their purpose was to disrupt Gahnawage's sovereignty and to consolidate DIA control. The following case study, however, reveals that the DIA continued to struggle to impose itself while Gahnawage Hironu continued to assert their nationhood and lived according to their laws. The Law 205 Case the Wallbank Survey, Chapter 6, was launched in part to facilitate land expropriations for the construction of a CPR bridge and railway line in Gahnawage, but the survey was not yet complete when construction began in 1886. Nevertheless, Wallbank's map and valuations were used to determine compensation for expropriated land. Without obtaining a permit from anyone, CPR engineers simply began construction, leaving the DIA with a job of determining who should receive compensation. The bridge connecting Lachine to Gahnawage was completed in August 1887, allowing CPR trains to cross the continent without the use of ferries. Some Gahnawage Hironu took jobs and perceived other benefits related to the bridge and rail line, but they were the cause of much trouble for others. During construction, the CPR trespassed on the lands of many Gahnawage Hironu, stored materials on certain lots against the wishes of their owners, and built water lines and windmills without permission. 
After the line was finished, landowners complained of flooded fields due to poorly maintained railway ditches, fires ignited by sparks from train engines, and valuable animals killed on the tracks due to poor CPR fencing. The bridge approach crossed and blocked an important Gahnawage road, and it cut off access for village cattle to graze on a seasonal island and wetland. Then, in 1893, the CPR informed the DIA that it intended to use a hill on a lot in Gahnawage as a borrow pit. The bridge approach on the Gahnawage side consisted of wooden trestles, and now the company wanted to make it more permanent by replacing it with an approach made of earth. The hill on the lot would supply the necessary soil. It is unclear if the company ever received formal departmental approval for this work, but regardless, in the fall of 1893, it began excavating a hill on what Wallbank had labeled Lot 205. In some CPR-related expropriations, DIA officials were able to follow Wallbank's lot lines to determine compensation, but this case confounded them. They simply could not determine who owned Lot 205 and who should therefore receive the compensation money. A year after the excavation, the CPR paid the DIA $558 in compensation for the lot, leaving Indian agent Brosseau the task of deciding who should receive it. Initially, there were two claimants, Danegoras Jacques Lochadier and Sagorewata Peter Parqui, who agreed to split the money. However, before it was paid out, a third claimant came forward, Sogojun, William Malush. Curiously, Agent Brosseau went ahead and paid the two original claimants, but he withheld $50 from each to protect himself in case the department should decide that Malush's claim was a good one. The DIA then decided to hold an inquiry to find the true owner of the lot and who was entitled to the remaining $100. According to Wallbank, Lot 205 consisted of 9.4 acres, 7.1 of which were hayland and 2.3 were bush. He valued it at $73, a low figure that was typical of his approach if a property did not feature cultivated land, sugarbush, or buildings. He listed the owner as Sayoneza Guerra, Peter Montour Jr., but this man died soon after the Wallbank Tribunal collected its information. The previous owner had been his father, Peter Montour Sr., known as Grey Horse, who was also father of the claimant Danegoras' wife. According to Agent Brosseau, a man named Peter Lachaudière had inherited the lot on the death of Sayoneza Guerra. In an internal departmental memo, however, W.A. Austin stated that the lot was claimed by the widow of Sayoneza Guerra. Her name is not known. For unknown reasons, the DIA inquiry accepted neither Peter Lachaudière nor the widow of Sayoneza Guerra as legitimate claimants. When the department asked Brosseau what exactly the problem was, he explained that there was no dispute respecting this land before the CPR intended taking land at this site, that it was then that unknown owners began to make claims to lot number 205. This statement contradicted the DIA truism that intrinsically dysfunctional and irrational Indians fought chronic battles over land and that only outside intervention could end the eternal squabbles. 
Clearly, the multiple users and owners of Lot 205 had operated side by side without difficulty under Gahnawage law. Conflict arose only when an outside entity interfered. All parties agreed that Sagarewada's claim was legitimate and that he was entitled to half of the $100, so he did not participate in the inquiry. Documents provide few clues as to his claim, but the idea that more than one person had a legitimate claim to the lot appears to have been widely accepted, and the dispute eventually centered on whether Sagoju or Danegoras should receive the remaining $50. I can find no explanation as to why Brosseau paid out $458 of the original $558 before the inquiry was held. The point of the inquiry was to determine who should receive the remaining $100, half of which was already earmarked for Sagarewada. The two claimants for the $50 were Sagoju and Danigordas. Aged 33, Sagoju William Malush was married to Leontine Malush, who was 26. The 1901 census lists him as a foreman. His parents were members of the Malush and Jason families, both widely disliked in Gahnawage and perceived as white. There was an ongoing effort to have both of these families evicted. In 1868, for example, chiefs pressured the DIA to evict white men, including Sogoju's father, Osias Malush, and his maternal grandfather, Charles Gideon Jason. The DIA initially issued an eviction order for Malush and Jason, but then rescinded it on the basis that they had married Indian women before Canadian law specified that white men could not gain Indian status through marriage. In 1878, Osias Malush died in a barn fire that was deliberately set. In 1885, Wallbank listed Sagoju as a half-breed who owned no land even though his family had extensive holdings. When Wallbank asked him whether he was recognized as a member of the Gahnawage band, he replied, I think so. However, the four chiefs on the Wallbank Tribunal unanimously voted against him because he does not belong to this band and his father was a French-Canadian. Sagoju stated that the Lot 205 had belonged to his family for 25 years, ever since his father, Osias Malush, had purchased it from Sayoneza Gerda. When asked why he had not included it as part of his 1885 Wallbank Tribunal claim, he said that he and his family were so hated in Gahnawage that he had not dared to attempt it. Before the inquiry, Tanegordas, Sagorewada, and their witnesses had declared to Agent Proso that Sogonju had never held land at the Lot 205 site. They argued that Sogorewada's father had owned the land, but that several years before Sayoneza Gerda took possession by right of the improvements which he had made on the land. This appears to be the case where Sayoneza Gerda was able to make use of the land that was not being used and that he thus gained a right to it in the customary way. The details of the arrangement are not divulged in the records, but Sagarewadis' father and Sayoneza Gerda apparently maintained their simultaneous ownership without any obvious conflict. The other main claimant, Danegoras, James Lachaudière, was 51 in 1895. Ten years earlier, Wallbank had listed him as a sub-chief, yet his Gahnawage membership was disputed by two of the four tribunal chiefs, because he was born out of wedlock, and the identity of his father was unknown. 
Considering the matrilineal norms of Rudinashuni, their stance is significant. Danegoras was a prominent leader, and even the Lot 205 inquiry showed that he had support from those who held to Gahnawage law. In 1885, he signed his claimant form with an X, which indicates that he was probably illiterate. In 1895, he had a nine-year-old son who lived with him and his wife, and the 1901 census records him as a voyageur, river pilot. The Inquiry The DIA inquiry into the Lot 205 compensation question began in February 1895, after the hill on it had been destroyed and was now a hole in the ground. None of the claimants had a clear idea of where Lot 205 began and ended, and none of them had seen it as a piece of real estate to be bought and sold. It was only with the destruction of the hill and the subsequent inquiry that anyone attempted to frame the land in this way. Thus, this inquiry included much confusing testimony as to the extent of Lot 205. Testimony suggests that the lot included the hill, but there is also discussion of land below the hill without providing any clarity as to where the boundary lay that Wallbank had drawn. As neither Sagoju nor Danegoras had a deed for the lot, they brought witnesses to vouch for them under oath, but the DIA file includes few details on how the inquiry was run. Ten people testified on behalf of Sagoju and six for Danegoras. Each claimant was also represented by a prominent person who spoke on his behalf and cross-examined the other claimant's witnesses. Sagojung was represented by George Cherrier, the former Indian agent who was also his uncle, and Danegoras was represented by Wanyande, John Jocks, a 30-year-old band counselor and owner of a major Gahnawage quarry. Many of the testimonies were delivered in Ganyokgeha and subsequently translated into French and English but the Ganyonkeha original is not in the DIA file. The file includes translations of some testimonials in English, of others in French, and of some in both languages. Below, I summarize the highlights of the testimony, beginning with those who spoke on behalf of Sogonju on February 15, 1895. The first witness for Sogonju was Onuzihada, Frank Hill. As he explained, a certain François Baudet had told him that he had recently purchased hay grown on Lot 205 from Danegoras. However, Sagoju had mown and taken the hay before Danegoras could do it himself. On multiple occasions, Baudet asked Danegoras for his money back, only to be told that Danegoras planned to sue Sagoju for compensation and would then reimburse him. But Danegoras never followed through on this plan. The suggestion here is that Danegoras' claim to the hay on Lot 205 was weak because he would have fought for compensation had it been otherwise. The interference is that Danegoras had no legal recourse when Sagoju removed the hay. Charles Xavier Jasson, Sagoju's 62-year-old uncle, spoke next. He owned Lot 207, just northeast of Lot 205. He claimed that for at least the last 30 years, his neighbor on Lot 205 had been Osias Malush, Sagoju's father. He thought that Osias Malush had purchased the lot from Peter Montour Jr., but admitted that his knowledge of the sale was based on hearsay. He had a good view of the lot from his own haying lands, and he had never seen or heard of anyone except Osias Malush working it before Malush's death. 
Malush's activities on the land included planting crops, cutting branches, and removing stones. Jason related a version of the story told by Onosihada that Sagoju had appropriated Baudet's hay in 1893. Overall, Jason had no direct knowledge of Ozias Malush's supposed purchase of the lot, but he bolstered Sagoju's case by showing that Malush had farmed and gathered there. The subsequent witness, Anadagardias Thomas Hill, also testified that the late Peter Montour Jr. had sold the lot to Osias Malush. He then specified that it had actually belonged not to Montour, but to Skazahade, Marianne, the widow of Peter Montour Sr., who was living in the house of Montour Jr. at the time. Because she was sick and very poor, she decided to sell the land to support herself and to pay for her eventual funeral. Anadagarias had heard Montour Jr. say that the land was his because he had looked after the woman who owned it. The main contribution of this witness to Sagoju's case was to give a credible, detailed story of how, even though Skazanhade had apparently sold the lot to Osias Malash, many believed that Peter Montour Jr. had owned the lot before he sold it to Osias Malash. Similarly, the next witness, Saragua, testified that Peter Montour Jr. sold the land in question and that he had the right to it because he took care of Skasanhade. Saragua said he had been afraid to appear at the inquiry because he had heard that whoever testified in favor of Sagojo would be branded a troublemaker, and he was worried about his health since he had heart problems. Under cross-examination, he was unwilling to reveal the source of his information. His testimony confirmed some aspects of the way in which Peter Montour Jr. came to possess the lot by way of his relationship with Skosahande. It also reveals the high stakes of the case, to the extent that Saragua feared retribution for taking the side of a family that was widely seen as harmful and illegitimate. Sat de Garajes Matthias Hill, a 56-year-old agricultural laborer with no farmland of his own, testified that Lot 205 had belonged to Osias Malush and ought therefore to belong to his son, Sagoju. Several times during the last 20 years, he himself had planted peas on the lot, and he knew of no one who had made a claim to it during that period. When cross-examined about its boundaries, he stated emphatically, I do not know the boundaries of this land, but I know the land which I worked. For at least eight years, he had been employed by Leon Jasson, Sagoju's uncle, during which he had worked on the lot three times. His testimony indicates that Leon Jasson had Osias Malush's permission to work the land or had an arrangement to share it with him. The next five witnesses gave shorter statements. The first was Dahahande Edward McCumber, a 39-year-old cousin of Soguju's mother, who testified that Soguju had hired him eight years previously to work the land. Before I worked there, he recounted, I did not know that he had land on the high ground. I knew that he had land below, but I did not know that he had it there. This admission from a relative that he did not know Soguju owned land on the hill may have hurt Soguju's case. The next witness, Joseph Reed, age 38, said that he had worked for Zaguju on the lot in about 1883. At the time, it had never occurred to him that the land might not belong to Zaguju. Like most other witnesses, he did not know where its boundaries lay, but he had cut hay on both its high and low land. 
The next witness was Sagujas's 50-year-old uncle, Leon Jasson, who said that he himself had paid people to work the land. He asserted that the Malush family had owned it for over 30 years and that no one questioned their ownership before the CPR appropriated it. He could say very little about its size and location. Delvida Malush, Sagujas's 35-year-old brother, spoke next. He claimed that he knew the boundaries of the lot because his father, Osias Malush, had showed them to him. Sagujas's final witness was his mother, Charlotte L. Jasson. She testified that she herself had purchased Lot 205 some 25 to 28 years previously from Peter Montour. It's unclear if it was the younger or the older, and that the sale had been notarized by notary Defoy in the presence of two men. She had acquired the land to be nearer to her father, but had told her son Sagujun that it was his. When asked about its extent, she said, I bought all the high land in question, that is to say the flat land, the length of my father's land up to another small piece of flat land behind, but I cannot say that this is all the high land. She could not find the deeds to the lot and could not remember how much she had paid for it. In fact, she did not recall whether she had bought it with cash or in exchange for a horse. She had not visited it since the date of purchase, but she insisted that her husband, Osias Malush, had showed her the boundary at the time. Charlotte Jasson was the only one of the witnesses to claim that she had purchased the land and given it to her son. Sagujas' witnesses thus largely agreed that the late Osias Malush had owned Lot 205 and that his ownership was uncontested until the CPR expropriation, with the notable exception of Charlotte Jasson, who portrayed herself as the owner rather than her husband. Some remembered that Osias Malush had the authority to permit people to work on the lot, and others recalled working for him there. Only Sagujas' brother and mother claimed to know its boundaries— and only the latter mentioned a notarized deed, which she said she had lost. Much of the testimony was vague, some was contradictory, and some even seemed to go against Sagujas' case. The witnesses for Danegoras made their statements a week later, on February 22, 1895. The first witness was Ganawayandu, Michelle Jacob, age 64, one of the largest landowners in Ganawage. In 1885, Wallbank had recorded that he possessed seven lots totaling 112 acres, valued at $2,359. One was Lot 210, which nearly bordered Lot 205. According to Gunawayandu, Lot 205 had belonged to Peter Montour Jr. about 20 years earlier, and he had seen Montour working there over the course of two summers. As he explained, When I saw Montour working there, I believed that it was his. Thus, he felt that Montour owned the land because he worked on it. Various people had asked Montour for permission to cut hay on the land and had been allowed to do so. According to Ganawayandu, the land Montour owned was about four acres of high land, whereas Ozias Malush owned some land below the hill. When asked if Malush could have purchased the land on the hill without his knowledge, Ganawayandu admitted that it was possible but added, I know all the lands that he bought by having seen him working on those lands. He had passed by nearly every year for 42 years and never saw anyone planting a crop there before Montour. Gunawayandu's testimony reveals that he was familiar with the history of the land and of the lands worked by Osias Malush. He had not seen Malush working on Lot 205 and thus was confident that it did not belong to him. 
By contrast, he had seen Montour farming there. Ajad Arune, Thomas Jacob, aged 55, testified that in about 1873, Peter Montour Jr. had put him in charge of the wood he had cut on the hill. He and Montour encountered Ozias Malush there, who was loading their wood onto his cart. A fight ensued after Montour questioned Malush and began to throw the wood out of the cart. Malush got the worst of it and left. The wood in question, stated Ajadarune, had been cut where Montour was working on the land. He was master there. He was not afraid to go there. He had worked there, and he was the master. Asked if Montour possessed a deed for the land, Ajadarune emphasized that his ownership flowed from the work he had done there. He did not tell me that he had a document, but he told me that it was he who had worked on the land. Asked if Osias Malush had been stealing the wood, he answered, he must have meant to do so, as the late Montour took the wood in question away from him because it was he who had worked the land. The legal principles articulated by Ajadarune are in line with those expressed by Gahnawage chiefs throughout the 19th century and embodied in the 1801 Code. According to him, Montour had the right to the land because he worked it, and he had a right to the wood because he had cut it. Malush was in the wrong because he was attempting to take wood that he had not cut. The next two witnesses presented shorter statements. 38-year-old Dejardenus, Francois Baudet or Frank Leclerc, testified he had known the land for 26 years and had never heard anyone say that it belonged to Osias Malush. He said that he had cut hay there with the permission of Danegoras, whom he saw as the present owner, and that Malush had never interfered with his haying because the land was not his. Dejarenius thus emphasized that Danegoras, not Malush, gave permission to others who wanted to cut hay on the lot, that Malush had nothing to do with it and could not stop it. 54-year-old Ayonduni, Rayondunis, or Jean-Baptiste Canadian, or Big John, a famous lacrosse player and river pilot, spoke next. He had known the parties and the land for 30 years and had heard that Peter Montour and his son were its recognized owners. He appears to have offered no further details, which suggests that he was present because he was a well-known and trusted member of the community. Next was Francois Delaboue, aged 46, who said he first worked on Lot 205 with Peter Montour Jr. some 22 years earlier, breaking up the land. The first time I went there, he stated, I went to cut underbrush. I worked on this land for the late Montour every spring for five consecutive years and at other times in the autumn. He helped Montour quite often but was not paid for his labor. Also, he had observed Osias Malush cutting wood below the hill, apparently with the blessing of Peter Montour. According to Delabu, Osias Malush took possession of it, the lowland, in order to work it in accordance with the custom at the time. The higher land, however, belonged to Peter Montour, as it was he who worked the land. In noting that both Malush and Montour took possession of their respective areas by working them, Delabu thus clearly references Gahnawage legal principles. The final witness for Dunagordas was Louis Norton, aged 82, who gave a slightly different perspective on who first claimed the land, but also focused on Gahnawage legal principles. He never saw Peter Montour Sr. on the lot and had never heard anyone say that it belonged to him. In fact, he said it was Peter Montour Jr. took possession according to custom to work it. 
nor in, had seen Montour Jr. working on the land in about 1880, which is how he knew he had rights to it. Because Norton passed by there nearly every day, he could confidently say that he had never seen anyone else working on the hill, nor had he noticed that the land was sown or cleared of stones. He then summarized the legal principle. It has been the custom here that whoever worked a piece of land became the owner of it and was recognized as such by the tribe. Before Peter Montour Jr. worked the land, Norton argued this land did not belong to anyone. No one could buy it, as no one had the right to sell it. In his mind, Gahnawage law was the only legitimate law, which meant that anyone who claimed to have owned, purchased, sold, or inherited the land without working it was wrong. He had never seen Osias Malush working there, and therefore Malush could not have been the owner. There are some important differences between the testimonies of the two sides. Sogodjo's witnesses tended to think about land ownership in colonial legal terms and thus focused on the supposedly uncontested nature of Osias Malush's ownership of the lot. They saw land ownership as passed down from father to son via inheritance. This was a relatively new, colonial way of viewing land ownership in Gahnawage and a departure from the legal principles expressed by Gahnawage Hironu throughout the century. Two of Sogoju's witnesses believe that Skasohade had been the original owner and that Sogoju had inherited her claim to the land by way of Osias Malush's purchase. Although it would seem to disrupt the patriarchal logic for a woman to be the first in this chain of ownership, the fact that she was a widow before her title was transferred to a man adds legitimacy in a colonial legal context. Several witnesses said that Sogoju and his relatives had paid them to work the land, which they felt bolstered his case. Again, this logic is consistent with colonial legal principles, but it goes against Gahnawage law, which focused on the extent of land a person could work unaided. For many people, the fact that Sogoju required hired help proved that he owned too much, and this would have been especially true of his family, widely seen as white interlopers who had no right to live in Gahnawage. The Negornas' witnesses, on the other hand, interpreted land ownership through the lens of Gahnawage law. Nearly all of them insisted that a claim to land was legitimate only if the claimant worked the land. In fact, they suggested that claiming land without working it was ludicrous. Two witnesses mentioned having worked for or with Montour, but none were paid for their work. It is important to note, however, that Ganawayandu, one of the largest property owners in Gahnawage, possessed much more land than he could possibly have worked without assistance, which suggests that the Negornis' side may have had a double standard on this matter depending on who is being discussed. But overall, the witnesses who spoke for Danagoras concentrated on how and when each claimant used the land. One of them, François Delabou, even thought that Osias Malush had gained his claim to the low land by following Gahnawage law, working a piece of unclaimed land. Some of Sagojo's witnesses also referred to this basis for claiming land, but they tended to be more focused on deeds and inheritance which never came up during the questioning of Donegordas' witnesses. Very few witnesses had any clue as to where Lot 205 began and ended, even though its boundaries are so clearly marked on the Wallbank map. Many spoke of it as an area with high and low ground, but few thought of it as a bounded lot that could be bought and sold. 
Witnesses on both sides were chosen for their deep knowledge of the place and for their memories of what had happened there, yet most could not answer questions about ownership in a way that would have made sense to DIA officials. The testimony of Ajad Daruni, who spoke for Danegoras, was particularly revealing on this front. Even as he was being asked about the ownership of Lot 205, he immediately pivoted to talking about wood rather than bounded territory. The wood belonged to the person who cut it, he asserted in response to questions about who owned the land. Even a decade after the Wallbank survey, these witnesses were still speaking about land in terms of its relationships with specific people, what people did there, rather than how it was bounded and who held the deed. Former Gahnawage Indian agent George Cherrier represented his nephew Sagunju at the inquiry and wrote a letter in support of his claim. Grounding his argument in his interpretation of the past 50 years of Gahnawage history, he stated that Gahnawage Hironu had typically allied themselves with the English and against the French. Aversion to the French, according to Cherrier, was traditional with them and seemed to be transmitted from father to son. This explained their long-standing campaign to evict French Canadians. His narrative began with the attempted eviction of Georges de Lorimier and the 1835 Supreme Court of Montreal decision that recognized his right to live in Gahnawage against the wishes of the chiefs. Then, in 1865, two barns belonging to Métis farmers were set on fire after the harvest, and someone set fire to the barn of Osias Malush in 1878, in which he died trying to save his animals. The following year, another five barns and sugar shacks went up in flames, and Cherrier cited other examples from more recent years. His point was to show the challenging position of the Malush family and the difficulty of maintaining their lands and properties in the face of constant attacks. According to Cherrier, the DIA supported the Métis only half-heartedly, and he was concerned that their rights as members of the Gahnawage band had never been fully recognized. He portrayed the Malushes as among the few civilized people in Gahnawage, surrounded by hateful sauvage, one of the most common racist tropes evoked to delegitimize Gahnawage law and those who wish to live according to it. Cherrier also suggested that Osias Malush's deed to Lot 205 had been lost in the 1878 fire, although it seems unlikely that anyone would store legal documents in a barn. Wanyande, Danegordas' spokesperson, blasted Cherrier's insinuations and wild statements, which merely demonstrated that the claims of the Malushes are not founded on any other fact than upon their hatred and distrust of the Indians of Kaknawaga. In addition, Wanyande found Sogoju's witnesses unreliable, especially Charlotte Jassin, whose testimony was contradictory and nonsensical. It was widely acknowledged, stated Wanyande, that Soguju owned land near Lot 205 but not Lot 205 itself. Unlike Soguju, who made his claim only after the CPR asked for the right to the lot, Danegoras always was the possessor, a fact that he proved with fair and respectable witnesses. He had acquired his title from the estate of Peter Montour, who had taken hold of the property and improved the same which, according to the Indian custom of old, became his real and valid title. A young quarry owner and band counselor, Wanyande was familiar with colonial language around land ownership, but he was also versed in Gahnawage law, even though he was only a teenager during the Wallbank survey. 
Thus, he noted that Peter Montour's claim to Lot 205 was based on Gahnawage custom or law, but unlike the witnesses for his client, Wanyande also spoke the colonial language of improvement, property, and title. Controversy and Conclusion of the Case After hearing all the witnesses, Agent Poisseau was still unsure of how to proceed but obviously wanted to find in favor of Saguju because of his close relationships with the Malush family. He stated that a number of testimonies were rather contradictory despite the fact that the witnesses were worthy of belief. And he emphasized that Lot 205 was of poor quality, used by the claimants primarily for cutting wood and hay. Nevertheless, Brosseau thought that Sogunju was probably the real owner, even though it was odd that he could not produce a title, given that his relatives were normally so scrupulous about acquiring such documents. Brosseau concluded that Donegoras and his father-in-law, Peter Montour Sr., had cleared the land at one point but then ceased to do any more work on this land and contented themselves with cutting the hay thereon or causing it to be cut. Although it seems absurd not to see haying as work, Brosseau was using every possible rhetorical tool to shore up the case for Sagojo. As for Sagorewada, the claimant who did not participate in the inquiry, Brosseau believed that he had intended to clear a piece of Lot 205, but while he was getting ready, another Indian stepped in and took possession of it. Again, this point seems unjustified in light of the evidence presented and can be understood as further proof of Brosseau's preference for Sagojo. Unlike Brosseau, whose conclusions can be explained by his local relationships and loyalties, DIA officials had other motives. Secretary J.D. McLean thought that the widow of Peter Montour Sr., Skosanhade, should be seen as the true owner of the lot because otherwise the expense involved in Mr. Walbank's survey would be of little value. In making this comment, McLean admitted just how little relevance the Wallbank survey had for the reality of Gahnawage landowners, so much so that he decided to ignore a great part of the witness testimony. DIA officials had no interest in Gahnawage law, and since much of the testimony turned on its legal principles, the easiest course was simply to disregard what the most knowledgeable people had to say. Instead, the department turned to its own experts who would ensure that the Wallbank survey would indeed have value. Assigned the task of reading through the evidence in the case, Samuel Bray of the survey's branch declared that Peter Montour's widow, Skosanhade, was the rightful claimant, and since Danegordas was her heir, the compensation money should go to him. Nevertheless, Bray gave Sagunjo three months to produce further evidence that his family had purchased Lot 205. All three claimants contacted the department in the months following the inquiry to demand settlement in their favor. Danegoras felt that he had proven his case and should now be paid the additional $50. Sogoja's lawyer, on the other hand, suggested that since neither his client nor Danegoras could prove his right to the lot, and since they have actually occupied and worked it in turns, they should split the money. For his part, Sagorewada wondered why he had not yet received his $50 since no one disputed his right. Deputy Superintendent General Hayter Reed liked the suggestion of Sagunja's lawyer and asked Brosseau for his opinion. Although Brosseau had shown favoritism towards Sagunja and though Cherier had advocated so strongly for Sagunja during the inquiry, Brosseau thought that granting him any compensation money was far too dangerous. It is not possible to give any compensation to Malush Sogoju without there being considerable discontent among the Indians. 
unless a new investigation is given to Malash and he can prove his case with new facts. The difference between the two claimants is that the Malush family has always been contested by the Indians and that they have always had contracts for the land they bought from the Indians, which they do not have in the sole case in dispute here. They have contracts in all other cases. There are a great number of cases among the Indians who have no other title than the appropriation of land with the verbal or written evaluation of the chiefs of the time. Since the Malush family often possess deeds of sale or other notarized documents for their lots, whereas most Kahnawagehronu did not, the Malushes had a history of winning land disputes. The Lot 205 case was unusual in that they could not produce the requisite paperwork to confirm their ownership. Hader Reed acknowledged Brousseau's warning, but insisted that the department would do what was just and fair and would not be restrained from such course through any fear of the Indians being dissatisfied with its judgment. Given Reed's career, which was very much focused on destroying indigenous nations, he was probably sincere on this point, but DIA officials also knew that Gahnawage politics could not entirely be ignored. In August 1895, the department issued its decision that the lot had belonged to Skasahade. Peter Montour Jr. had cared for her and had sold her land to Osias Malush. Reed admitted that the DIA based its assessment entirely on Sogodjo's witnesses, whom it saw as more credible than Danagordas's. He believed that the statements of Sogodjo's witnesses are direct positive ones that bear an air of truthfulness which carries conviction and are free from any appearance of connivance between the witnesses or attempt on the part of any individual to prove too much. As for Danagoras's witnesses, Reed believed they contradicted each other in stating that both Peter Montour and Sagorewada had owned and used the land for three decades. It is indeed telling that Reed could not entertain the possibility of shared possession when in fact credible witnesses had clearly stated that multiple people were sharing the land and that the arrangement had not been seen as problematic until the CPR and DIA got involved. It should be mentioned that Reed seemed unaware that there was a third undisputed claimant who had already been compensated. He also suspected that Danagoras's witnesses were lying and coordinating their stories beforehand. Although the DIA had a close relationship with the Montour family, Reed was also influenced by the fact that Danagoras's witnesses referred more often to Gahnawage law and practice, whereas Sogodjo's witnesses tended to focus on sales and transfers of legal title. Considering Reed's career focused on destroying indigenous nationhood, it is not surprising that here too he came down against anything unfamiliar or threatening, namely indigenous ways of engaging with the land. He was so eager to believe Sagoju's case that he even found it not unreasonable to suppose that the deed may have been destroyed by the fire in which Osias Malush lost his life. In the end, however, he did acknowledge that Sogudju's claim was rather weak since he did not have a title document and had not registered his claim with Wallbank in 1885. Thus, Reed decided that the fairest thing under the circumstances was to divide the $50 between Sogudju and Danigordas. When this verdict was announced, Sogudju was content, but Danigordas angrily rejected it. The DIA responded by threatening to give the entire amount to Sogudju. But the department had botched the inquiry so badly that now Sagoerada demanded to have the case reopened so he could have a hearing as well. 
Although he and Danagoras had received most of the compensation, $229 each, and he had not participated in the inquiry, he was furious about its outcome. He claimed to have acted on poor advice from the agent in absenting himself from the inquiry. Months went by before the DIA finally decided in January 1896 to send one of its officers, James Campbell, to Gahnawage to investigate. When Campbell arrived, Sagorewada explained that he had nothing to say about the dispute between the other two claimants, Sagojo and Tanegoras. His contention was simply, in Campbell's words, that the whole lot originally belonged to him, and that while he would not dispute the title which others might have acquired to parts of the lot, through having entered upon and improved such parts thereof, he claims that all of the lot, not so improved, belongs to him. Sagorewada said that he only wanted the $50 he had been promised, but Campbell now thought the easiest and fairest solution would be to divide the $100 equally among the three claimants. Sagorewada understandably refused to take less than the sum originally promised, and Campbell concluded that neither Sagorewada nor Danegoras would accept any decision that recognized even part of Sagorewada's claim. This is false, since Campbell himself recorded Sagorewada as saying that it was none of his business whether the remaining $50 be given to Danegoras or to Malush, as long as he received what he had been promised. Sagorewada did not care about the other claims, he just wanted his half of the compensation money. Nevertheless, Campbell returned to Ottawa and advised the department to split the money three ways. He feared that the number of reverse decisions in the case reflected poorly on the department and suggested being more consistent in the future. In the end, Danegoras accepted the payment, but both Sagonjo and Sagorewada refused it. The 67 unclaimed dollars remained with the department. A year later, in the spring of 1897, Wanyande wrote to DIA Superintendent General Clifford Sifton on behalf of Sagorewada. In light of the fact that the department had given a decision, not one decision, but three decisions, each one worse than the preceding one, he asked that Sagorewada be paid the $67 in order to extinguish his claims for two lots, including Lot 205. The department declined to cooperate, so Wanyande brought Sagorewada's case before the Band Council, which unanimously passed a resolution recognizing Sagorewada as the owner of Lot 205 and authorizing the department to pay him $67. The DIA insisted on giving Sagunju a chance to defend himself before the council, with witnesses, even though Brosseau knew that the councillors would not be swayed. In any case, Sagunju had already received his $33, so it is unclear why the department insisted on this course. Sagunju presented his case before the band council on September 24th, 1897, along with a number of witnesses who spoke on his behalf. As Rousseau had predicted, the council, dominated by opponents to the DIA, found in favor of Sagorewada. With the help of the council, Sagorewada had produced a document to provide his title, whereas Sagunju still had no such document. The councillors rejected the veracity of Sagunju's witnesses, saying that they would not listen to witnesses against documentary evidence. Driving the point home, they noted that the force of writing could not be affected by witnesses. This apparently sarcastic comment regarding the superiority of the written word was almost certainly a biting reference to the many instances in which the Malushes had used title documents to triumph over other Gahnawage families. 
It was also probably a reference to the cavalier way in which Hader Reed decided which witnesses had spoken truthfully at the inquiry. After protracted consultation and with obvious discomfort, the DIA finally approved the council resolution and paid Sagorewada his $67 in December 1897. He and his allies had won a resounding victory. This case, however, was not simply a battle between certain individuals. It was one of many clashes over differing understandings of land ownership. Although the Indian agent was deeply entwined in these debates and often took sides, he was constrained by the dynamic political realities of Gahnawage in ways that the department did not always understand. The case was also a site of contestation over the governance of Gahnawage itself. The department repeatedly attempted to solve the Lot 205 problem itself, but eventually had to resort to the Band Council to get a final decision. Although it wanted to protect its allies in the community, in the end, it proved unable to do so. The case of Lot 205 shows that 10 years after it had been conducted, the Wallbank survey was still not very relevant to ordinary people. Wallbank had drawn an elaborate map of all existing lots and had completed the Herculean task of determining an owner for each. But witnesses at the inquiry never once mentioned his map and only rarely referred to lots by number. There was a great deal of confusion about lot boundaries, suggesting that Wallbank had not placed markers around Lot 205 or that they had been lost. What Wallbank thought he was doing was to map the existing lots, but even the supposedly existing lots did not yet exist in the way he depicted them, bounded lots owned according to colonial norms. And in an attempt to show the relevance of his expensive survey, the DIA tried hard to match its decisions to Wallbank's findings. Although its own reports criticized his work as unreliable and unfinished, it nevertheless insisted on the value and accuracy of his survey. In fact, it pursued this course so doggedly that, as one can argue, land ownership in Gahnawage eventually had to become what Wallbank had envisioned. Another key point revealed by the Lot 205 case is that many Gahnawage Hironu in the 1890s still thought about land and relationships in terms of Gahnawage law. The Indian Act had been on the books for two decades, yet it seemed to have little impact on what they believed and remembered about the hill that became Lot 205. Even Agent Brosseau had to refer to the custom of the reserve in describing the situation to his DIA superiors. Clearly, some Gahnawage Hironu still claimed land and cut wood according to Gahnawage law. Many lots were still owned without documentary titles, ownership was still in flux from year to year, and people's relationships to land still did not match the colonial model envisioned in the Indian Act. The clash over Lot 205 provides a dramatic glimpse into the great antipathy felt by many Gahnawage Hironu for deeds and other documents that were intended to prove ownership, as well as for those who relied on them to prevent others from accessing land and wood. Between the lines and behind the pragmatic arguments, however, there was a seething anger at repeated territorial and political incursions and at their collective inability to stop them. Gahnawage Hironu could resist and refuse the colonial invasion, but it would continue regardless. Another key takeaway from the Lot 205 case is that the DIA, in a typical moment of inconsistency and weakness, attempted to protect its allies while making decisions that it hoped would have the appearance of lawfulness and fairness. 
My insistence here on the weakness of the DIA may seem to diminish the seriousness of the colonial invasion itself, but I contend that DIA inconsistency and incompetence wrought great harm. For those who suffered at its hands, the department would have seemed neither weak nor harmless, but it was widely known to be underfunded and understaffed. It was able to impose its will on the most devastated and vulnerable Indigenous people in ways that have been well documented, but in Gahnawage, it encountered a type of resistance that it was poorly equipped to handle. Its goal in imposing the Ban Council was to gain control, yet the Lot 205 case shows that it still struggled to achieve its objectives, whereas Gahnawage Hironu continued their struggle to govern themselves as they wished. Conclusion Even most of those who supported a band council government structure in principle disliked the way in which the DIA ignored the will of Gahnawage Hironu at every turn, sometimes breaking its own laws to do so. Very few in Gahnawage wished for the department to undermine their own laws, voices, and sovereignty through the imposition of the Indian Advancement Act. And even after it was put in place, many tried to have the decision reversed. The Indian agent regularly misrepresented Gahnawage public opinion to his superiors in Ottawa, using any convenient stereotype to slander those who opposed the DIA and trying to remove uncooperative band councillors. After the Advancement Act had already disenfranchised Gahnawage women, the DIA set up electoral districts in a way that gave its own supporters massively disproportionate power, effectively disenfranchising Gahnawage men who lived in the village. At every turn, the department showed itself to be uninterested in what Gahnawage Hironu wanted and deeply invested in imposing its own agenda. In the context of a 1900 land dispute, Brousseau expressed his frustration thus. The question is one of the most difficult to settle as it is necessary to follow the custom of the reserve, which is contrary to law. He juxtaposed Gahnawage custom with Indian Act law, even though Gahnawage law held sway for many. Some 25 years after the first Indian Act, and more than a decade after the imposition of the Advancement Act, the DIA was still unable to ignore Gahnawage law. The Lot 205 case shows that many Gahnawage Hironu framed conflicts over land in their own terms, and the history of the imposition of the Band Council system shows their refusal of the DIA and settler colonialism in general. Part of the DIA's mandate was to protect Indigenous peoples and their lands, but the way in which it understood and practiced this responsibility constantly undercut Indigenous self-determination and self-governance. Gahnawage Hironu did not ask for what they received. In some instances, DIA officials were undoubtedly genuine in claiming that they wanted what was best for Indigenous communities, but their good intentions often involved disregarding or overriding Indigenous laws and perspectives. At other times, their goal was obviously not the good of the community, but that of the department, its allies, companies, and neighboring settlers, in which cases the department responded promptly and enthusiastically. The problem of Lot 205 sprang from just such a moment, when the DIA facilitated railroad incursions that were opposed by Gahnawage leaders. But when Gahnawage Hironu asked the DIA to address their grievances, the department responded slowly and grudgingly, if it responded at all. 
However, the government documents of the day do not adequately capture the frustration and anger generated by departmental collusion in the degradation of Kahnawake lands. Anyone who visits Kahnawake today, cut up and crisscrossed as it is by canals, high-voltage power lines, highways, bridges, and railroads, might gain some idea of the emotion felt by those who lived on and loved this land. Figure 7.7 shows a place that remains rich in meaning long after its original character was lost. The Lot 205 inquiry reveals the way in which Gahnawa Gehronu understood land ownership and remembered a cultivated and wooded hill that, by the time of the inquiry, had become an open pit. It also brings to light the powerful antipathy between those Gahnawa Gehronu who held lots based on title documents and those who had no such documents, and between those who wished to be governed under colonial law and those who wished to govern themselves according to Gahnawa law. The case also shows just how little power the department had when an inquiry was held in a more public way and when band councillors were allowed a decision-making role. Although the band council was politically weaker than the council of chiefs had been, both in terms of perceived legitimacy within the community and in its ability to stand against the department, the Lot 205 case reveals that it could still win small victories defending nationhood and slowing the colonial invasion. However, the case also shows how, by the end of the 19th century, the patriarchal systems and assumptions of the settler colonial society had marginalized and invisibilized Gahnawage women, their leadership, and their relationships with each other and the land. After the Wallbank survey was completed, Gahnawage Hironu continued to buy and sell land. Some provided themselves with notarized deeds, whereas others still claimed and used land according to the old ways. We cannot know how much land fell into each category because Gahnawage did not have a comprehensive land registry, and many of the relevant records were lost in a 1943 fire at the agency office. Furthermore, lands held without legal documents left no paper trail unless a disagreement arose. Although the Gahnawage land laws of the 19th century seem not to have been asserted in the same ways in the 20th century, the issue of land ownership was far from resolved. Thanks to the unfinished nature of the Wallbank survey, departmental inattention to land transactions, and the legislated inability of Gahnawage leaders to properly govern their own territory, a high percentage of Gahnawage lots are now classed as undivided estates. Owned by multiple people, sometimes hundreds, they make up a large portion of Gahnawage territory. Some who favor the preservation of undeveloped land can see this situation as a blessing, as getting several hundred people to agree on selling or developing a lot is virtually impossible, but others see it as an impediment to development and a root cause of widespread environmental contamination. Another important problem is that many lots are not accessible by road for reasons closely related to the incomplete Wallbank survey. Some parcels are still held without any documentary title. The current problematic landholding regime is the result of the history related in this book. While the DIA interfered in Gahnawage affairs and undermined the ability of Gahnawage leaders to govern, it also failed to implement a functional land management regime.